I continue to preach from 1 Thessalonians. It has a distinction maybe of being the very first writing of the New Testament. It is a letter that Paul wrote very early on in his second missionary journey. And he wrote it at a time when the gospel was still being persecuted, not yet by the Romans so much, but the gospel and those who followed Christ were being persecuted by their own kinsmen. One of the obvious observations that one can make when reading the Old Testament uh, is that it offers a great deal of comfort and encouragement in such times. But it also declares that one day that a righteous king will come and that he will set things in order. And in the Old Testament, if you read certain passages of Scripture, particularly in Isaiah and Zephaniah, you will see that the promise of the coming of the Messiah is accompanied by great signs and wonders, the blowing of a trumpet. Uh, it will not be done in a corner. And so today I want to focus upon the second coming of Christ, which is found again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 uh, through 11. And so we find in the Old Testament a messianic expectation building up through the prophets. A messianic expectation where the Lord himself would come. But one of the things you begin to look at here is that we don't know a great deal about that Messiah as such. We think we know a great deal today, and maybe we do more than those Old Testament saints, because we, we look in hindsight. Jesus has come, and we tend to read a great deal of what we know about Jesus now back into the Old Testament, but it was much more sketchy to an Old Testament saint as to exactly what this meant. Now, they knew some things for sure. Number one, they knew that he would be of the lineage of David, a greater descendant of David. They knew that he would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that he would be born of a woman. They knew many things. They knew that he would some ways suffer. They also knew that he would come to execute justice and to bring salvation with him. You can find that in the Old Testament. But to flesh out this thought a little more, as to the time of it, it was not quite evident as we think it should have been at times. Almost everyone was surprised when Jesus actually came. First of all, he didn't come like most people thought he would come as a conquering king. He came as a lowly servant, if you will. A servant, one who would serve us and finally give his life for us. He came really as the suffering servant of Isaiah chapters 53 and 54. He came into the world to do something for us that we could not accomplish ourselves. He came to seek and to save the lost. But now we also know that that 
coming of the Messiah comes in two stages. He comes first as the suffering servant. He comes second as the Lord of glory, where every eye shall see him and every tongue shall confess him uh, to his own glory. Those Old Testament saints, I suspect, did not really understand that the coming of the Messiah would be in two phases. Not only did they not quite understand when he would come, they didn't really understand the details of how he would come. Now, this has not in any way caused many to demur a bit, to be careful, to be cautious about speculating about the second coming of Christ. So I'm going to be talking about this today, and today I want to focus on the second coming or the second phase of Jesus Christ's coming when he comes and he returns to ex execute judgment. Now, my point about the second coming today is a very simple one. And uh, uh, it might not set, settle, uh, set well with uh, everyone, but it's quite simple. And uh, I don't know as much about the second coming as some of you. And I don't know about much, much about the second coming as a lot of people because I tend to be very cautious in what I claim to know about the second coming. And my goal in one sense is also to persuade you to be very cautious in how you deal with the second coming. So here's the point. Number one, you cannot anticipate the second coming, but you can watch and be ready. Now, notice what I said. You cannot anticipate the second coming. You can expect it. I want to make a distinction between expectation and anticipation. Now, probably most of you have not played much basketball, but uh, I, I did as a, as a youngster. I played a lot of basketball, a lot of football. And in playing sports, uh, let's say, for instance, that I'm guarding a player who's coming down the court in basketball. I might stand aside and let him go to the court and uh, to the to the hoop and score. Uh, I could have expected that if I stand aside, he will go to the hoop and score. Maybe everyone in the audience watching the spectators watching the basketball game. If it was a great basketball player, they will expect him to score when he comes down the court. That's an expectation. An anticipation of something is actually prepare for it. If I'm guarding a basketball player who's coming down the, the court to score, I not only expect that he's going to try to score, I anticipate it by taking action to stop him or to prepare for it. An expectation can stand by and be a spectator. A person who anticipates something must be an active person who steps in to stop it or to be prepared for it, or whatever it is. It requires action. Expectation requires no action, but if you actually anticipate something, you get prepared for it. Now, we are to anticipate the second coming of Christ, not just simply to expect it. We are that too. But we, in fact, are to anticipate it. The problem is, I do not believe that you can anticipate the time. You can only anticipate the event. Now, that is my thesis sentence. Let me see 
if you will agree. When Paul wrote about this, uh, wrote about the coming of Christ, and when he wrote this letter, apparently the Thessalonians were not overly concerned about, mis about uh, the second coming as such, or they were not concerned uh, and had entered into what we'll call messianic fever. In the time of the New Testament and a period thereafter, messianic fever reigned in the land. It finally issued forth into the Bar Kokhba revolt later on. And under the Bar Kokhba revolt in about 134, thousands of Jewish messianic people were destroyed. Between the year 70 AD or 68 AD and about 134, 136 AD, hundreds of thousands of people were caught up in, if you will, the fever of the Messiah coming. And they laid their lives on the line and they were destroyed from Masada to the Bar Kokhba revolt by the Romans. But remember that when Paul was writing, there was actually peace. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, had been imposed upon the land. And there was no disturbance. It was not until around 68, 70 AD. He wrote this in about 52 or 54. So you could still say that there's peace. And when people say peace and safety, and of course we know that that peace came to a sudden end. So when Paul writes, he writes at a time when the Roman Empire is very much uh, in charge and has imposed a peace. Now, the reason I believe that the Thessalonians were not overly excited about the second coming, they were concerned about the resurrection, is because of the way Paul begins his letter. Look then to address this problem in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 5 then and verse 1 and let us start there. Now, brothers, he says, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. So apparently they were not overly concerned about times and dates. What they were concerned about, we find in chapter 4, is of whether those who have died in the Lord will equally share in the afterlife in the same way that they expected to do if they were alive at the coming of the Lord. Now, the important point, though, is that Paul wants them to be prepared for the second coming, no matter when it is. And so he begins to launch upon uh, some language here that has solely to do with being prepared at the coming of the Lord. Now, brothers, about the times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. First of all, let's talk about the signs that he mentioned uh, earlier in chapter 4. He says over and over, Paul does in several places, that no one knows the time of the coming of the Lord. Now, when I remind people of that, sometimes I get this back. Yes, pastor. That's right. No one really knows the exact time. But we can know about because of these signs. Let me talk about signs for a moment. 
You know, signs are hard to interpret. They're a bit tricky. I don't know whether you know that or not. I don't know whether you've actually sat down and meditated upon how difficult it is to interpret a sign. You can receive a sign, but you may misinterpret it. And um, I always fall back on an illustration that I, I heard from an uncle who, who used to tell me a bunch of stories and filled my head with a lot of things. But uh, I remember his stories, and some of them have gone through life with me. And here is one of them. He used to tell me of the old boy who was out plowing on a West Virginia hillside in the heat of the day. And um, he stopped, tired, hot, and sat down to relax and to uh, take his break, drink some water, when all of a sudden he saw in the sky a GP. The letters G and the letters P. And he jumped up and ran back home and he says, I've been called to preach. And uh, he announced that he had seen a large letters in the sky, GP, and he interpreted that, go preach. To which an older man and a sage in the community reminded him that that could have equally meant go plow. Now it's not easy to interpret a sign. Almost always though, uh, you have some context. And we do have signs accompanying the end and the coming of the Lord. The sound of the trumpet, earthquakes, so forth. But let me say that there are many earthquakes, are there not? There are many rumblings around the world. Not every tsunami is a sign of the coming of the Lord. Not every earthquake, even if it's as big as the one that happened in South America, where the earth actually was moved on its axis, is a sign of the coming of the Lord that it's imminent. Now, I'll tell you what it is. It is a sign that the Lord is coming, but it doesn't necessarily mean right now. It doesn't necessarily mean next year. Every terrorist attack does not mean that it's a sign that the Lord's coming is right now. I'll tell you what it is. It is a sign that the Lord is coming. And then when he does come, those signs, no doubt, will be intensified and he will come. But the truth is, you in your ordinary life cannot really nail this thing down and it would be useless to try. Though that doesn't discourage very many, does it, who are Christians? I wished Harold Camping had been discouraged. He has done more to wreck the faith of people uh, who are Bible-believing, sensitive Christians and anyone I know of recent. And he has persuaded people and set dates. And now there are lives and, uh, that have been destroyed. Some people sold everything they had and gave it to the radio ministry in anticipation. 
that Christ would come on those dates that he set. We know of many cases where people made in-time preparation and now they have to get on with their lives and reestablish themselves and try to take care of their children. It's a dangerous thing to go beyond the scriptures. One of the wisest counselor that I know on this point was John Calvin. And he took that verse, don't speculate above that which is written, as a kind of rule for his life. Be careful not to speculate beyond what the scriptures actually teach. It can be a dangerous thing. And for those who are simple uh, in understanding, it could destroy and harm lives. So you see, the GP in the sky can mean many things. We must be careful to take it in context. But what we do know is that when it comes, it will come like a thief in the night. That phrase is used four times in the New Testament. It is used by the Apostle Peter. It is found twice in the Gospels and it is found here. Now, what does it mean that the Lord will come like a thief in the night? He is coming. All Christians through the centuries have confessed that Christ is coming. Notice the great, great creeds. They include the second coming. The first coming must include the second coming. It is not the complete Fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament until Christ comes again, where every eye shall see him and every tongue confess him to his own honor and his glory. But he comes like a thief in the night. Now that's a simile, like. A simile is a, is a comparison as, as or like. What's it being compared to? Well, it's not that Jesus is a thief. It's the suddenness of it that it comes. It comes so quickly, and things will be wrapped up. You say, Pastor, well, I would just love to know exactly when it is. Well, I, I, I wish that we could satisfy your curiosity, but God in his wisdom decided not to. The times and the seasons are with him. And we are to patiently wait upon the Lord. But he comes as a thief. When he does come... It will be the most startling thing, surely, in human history. There will be nothing like it. I got a startle the other night. I got up and uh, I looked out the window at about 8 o'clock in the morning or earlier. Actually, it was earlier. And uh, I could just barely see the light of day and I noticed that I only had one beehive. And so I wait, waited till it got a little lighter and I went out and saw that my beehive, one of them was totally destroyed. And I think Eddie Weber better check his beehives. <laughs> totally destroyed. Well, I came in and I said to Marlene, I, I, you know, I think a bear has been in the beehive. Now, I have seen bears around here, and I knew that I had honey, and I knew they liked honey. 
So I came up to book club on Thursday, and just before I came up to have book club, I, I saw something big and black in the corner of the fences, bent over. And I kept looking and looking. This is in broad daylight now, mind you. And I'm looking and looking. What is that? I said, that's a bear. I came back and got in my car and drove toward him, honking the horn in the field. And he didn't run. He just ambled over the wall. And he wasn't 150 pounds. This was a big bear. He was full. He had had plenty of honey, I'm sure. He looked about 300 pounds or maybe more. He was a big one. Probably an older juvenile that had been driven out of the Catskills and other places by the older bears. Now that's a concern. But I knew there were bears around. They even find them in Newburgh, up a tree. I knew that I had honey like a thief in the night. And I wasn't prepared. Paul's whole point about this is, my friend, you know the times and the seasons. He will come. But are you prepared? Paul's whole discourse here, after you leave this, is to remind you to be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, while people are saying peace and safety and destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that that day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as breastplates and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a kind of messianic expectation etched upon the underbeliever's mind as well. I have no doubt that some of the alarm and some of the hyperventilating over the future that we find, particularly among some radicals, is that God has etched upon the fallen mind a sense that something is going to happen and there's going to be an end to things. Now here is how one Canadian activist 
interprets this. Author and activist Naomi Klein is a radical if there ever was one. And she sees climate change as the apocalypse. No matter that there is confusing and maybe even fraud involved in this whole thing, her prophecies, listen to them, go something like this. We need to impose, she says, punitive taxation, massive wealth redistribution, the abolition of free trade and free markets, and a state enforced in to the cult of shopping. We need to have an elite, she calls them an Illuminati, to impose this new world order on people before the impending disaster. Get away. Do away with democracy. Do away with free enterprise. Live in a hut in the field. Now, I interpret that kind of thing uh, in, in, in a different way than maybe most do. I do see that she has etched on her mind a sense of an end. But she misunderstands the signs. She, first of all, has no context whatsoever about the biblical expectation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. She's left to her fallen mind to sound the trumpet of alarm. And she would actually impose the most dichronian, uh, harmful uh, conditions upon the world. She would bring civilization to an end. We see that kind of alarm everywhere today. Even among religions. You know, in Islam, there is a sense of a Messiah coming. He's called the, the, uh, he's called the Mahdi. And part of what is fueling Iran's quest for a nuclear weapon, which they are very close to getting, is this idea that they must themselves bring in the signs. They are a sign of the coming of the Mahdi. And they must provoke revolution so that the Mahdi will come. So I say even on the fallen mind, there is a sense that there's an end. And it has something to do with a final and great event. My friend, I don't think you can understand that until you see it in the biblical context. And we are to be calm and peace and reserve. Notice how the Bible counsels to wait on the second coming. Be patient. Live quiet and peaceable lives. For the Lord does come. But you are to be prepared. Look for him. Pray for the salvation of your neighbor. Tell them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The final solution to our problems is not political and it is not economic. The solution to our problems will finally be in that one who gave himself for us in the middle of history that he might bring salvation with him at the end of history. That's the biblical expectation. And the Apostle Paul writes much about it. And notice how he ends up this passage. Let your hearts be comforted by this. Stay calm. Be patient. Look to the Lord. You are children of light, not of darkness. That's how those signs are to play in our hearts and lives. To keep us always ready at his coming on his time in the history. This is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who paid for your sins comes finally to free you from a world that is fallen. Praise be to God. Amen.